Every great Bible teacher has his own style of preaching and teaching the Word of God. Some are like shepherds, ushering us through the Bible. Others are teachers, showing us how to open the Word for ourselves. Some use eloquent words, while others use simple and plain. But you know, no matter what style the Bible teachers use, some people will love them and be drawn to them, and others won't like their methods, and they'll turn away. So then what happens when a church has three great Bible teachers, each with their own style, that causes the members of the church to form into small groups following one of them? What happens when these groups, wanting to support their man, begin to cause division which threatens to tear the church apart? Welcome to the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible. As current as that type of problem sounds, it's what happened with the body of Christ at Corinth. So let's travel back to that time with Dr. J. Vernon McGee as we examine Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and understand the true nature of the problem and how it was resolved. The title of our message is The Human Trinity in the Church at Corinth. Dr. McGee knew all about the conflicts common in churches since he himself was a pastor. It seems like an appropriate time to share this letter, in fact, from the Bible bus. It's from Karen, who lives in a small town in Colorado. I've been on the Bible bus for many years, Karen writes, and it's been a source of comfort, instruction in righteousness, and a way for me to learn how to hear God's Spirit speaking into my life. It's always served as a good supplement to our local church, filling in solid Bible teaching where it's not been consistently served from the pulpit. We love our church, but it's never been a place of peace or fellowship. Too many opinions and not enough foundation. We are a small town, but we've managed to turn off more than our share of pastors. We're in between pastors again. My husband and I feed ourselves from our daily feast from the Word on through the Bible. But we know we need to find or help build a healthy church. Thank you for praying for small churches like ours. Well, what a timely reminder that God loves the local church even with all of its problems. Let's pray for them, as well as our own churches, as we begin now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Help us to love each other and to be bound together by your example of grace and mercy. Teach us now, Lord, about your church, not only in Corinth in the first century, but ours in the 21st century. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's the Sunday Sermon from 1 Corinthians 1 with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. The human trinity in the church of Corinth. Now, Paul directed his message to Christians in Corinth. And if you'll notice the exact language he uses, and you can always put it down that the Word of God is accurate, he says, under the church of God, which is at Corinth. Not the church of Corinth. It's actually the church of God. And that's, may I say, very important to note. It's the church, the church of God as it manifests itself in local assemblies. And we need to keep that before us. And Paul here is directing this letter to a local constituency. And this series that we're beginning today will be directed to Christians church members specifically, for that's the ones to whom Paul is speaking. Now, I'm not speaking directly to those that are uncommitted to Christ. Somebody says, what about evangelism? Have you forgotten about that? No, I haven't lost sight of it. 
On the contrary, we are thinking of the unsaved. But may I say to you very candidly, until there is a spiritual climate in the local church, there cannot be the unhindered movement of the Spirit of God in our midst or in any church today. And that's the reason today there's no manifestation of the Spirit of God in a great revival in this land of ours. May I put it like this? Our churches have become a walk-in refrigerator for the unsaved, and they're not coming today. You can't boil water in a deep freeze, and we need today to have a climate in which the Spirit of God can move. Nineteen hundred years ago in Corinth, that church of God in Corinth, they were in a city that was very much like Los Angeles, only worse, and that's hard to believe, but it was true. And that church in Corinth was beset with problems. They lost sight of their main objective. And the contemporary church today is likewise beset with problems. It's almost shocking to discover that the problems of the church in Corinth 1,900 years ago are identical to the problems that we have today. Now, will you listen to Paul as he immediately goes to that which was primary in the church in Corinth? Listen to him. Now, I'm reading chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. That does not mean identical things, but the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now, this was the primary problem in the church at Corinth, and from it all other problems stemmed. It was a spreading spiritual disease. It was a sickness. It was a dreadful sickness that caused other collateral conditions of infection to get into the church. It was the root trouble in Corinth. Notice what he says. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye speak the same things, not contrary things, and that there be no divisions among you. And the word for division here in the Greek is schizo, and we get from that schism. In fact, that's the word in the Greek. Actually, there had been no open break in the church in Corinth. They had not divided but they were fractured because of little groups in the church. And then he goes on to say, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe. Now, Chloe was a woman, evidently a very wealthy woman, who had many servants. And the question's always been, did she live in Corinth or did she live in Ephesus where Paul wrote the letter? Now, I personally take the view she lived in Ephesus, and some of her servants had gone over there and found the condition and had come back and reported. So Paul nails it down. Who said it? 
Uh, he says, the household of Chloe told me this. I'm not repeating gossip. I'm telling you what I know, that there are contentions among you. Now, the word for contention, and I've been interested in these words a great deal, is the little Greek word eris. And eris was in the Greek mythology the goddess of strife. And that's as good as any here, strife. That there, there's strife. Instead of being you're in Christ, and instead of realizing that you've let a pagan heathen goddess of strife get in, and there's another word we have, wranglings. There are wranglings among you. Now, the, the strife in this church was not over some great doctrinal difference. That was not it at all. That hadn't yet come into the church. They were contending, all groups were contending for the faith. But they were centered about human personalities. Paul immediately goes right to the heart of the matter. He does not mince words at all. He's, a, he's God's surgeon working under the great physician, and he just puts in the knife here and lets you see what the problem is. He says, Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now, they were centered about actually three human personalities. Paul, Apollos, Cephas. That's the human trinity that was in the church. Now, the Word of God teaches a divine trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that's good. The Bible also teaches there's a satanic trinity, Satan, Antichrist, the false prophet. The Word of God also shows there's a human trinity. Here it is. And a human trinity can be either good or bad. On one side of the ledger, these men, every one of them, and these, I hope we see, are all three great men. These three men were... Christ's gift to his church, every one of them, Christ's gift to his church. Paul in Ephesians said to them that God has given to some teachers, evangelists, and he doesn't mean gifts there, but gifted man. He's given to the church these men, and Paul and Cephas and Apollos were Christ's gift to the church in Corinth. That's good. But when the church in Corinth began to set one of these men over against another man, that was evil. And that was the problem in Corinth. They developed a personality cult. They were following human leaders. One group in the church were following Apollos. One was following Paul, and another following Cephas. And I hasten to say that these three men were not responsible for the condition. In fact, they tried to avoid it. Paul deployed it. He's writing against it. He's attempting to break that awful thing up. Now, I want to label these three groups, and you see if I'm accurate in my label. That was the first group, the proud pupils of Paul. There were the adoring admirers of Apollos. And then there was the chummy cult of Cephas. As of the three groups that were in the church. Now, I want you to look at these three men. 
and see if that's not accurate. We can only give a thumbnail sketch of these men. We actually know more about Paul and Cephas than we do Apollos. And so let me say just a word concerning first Paul. Paul was, to my judgment, Paul was the greatest apostle of them all. I take the position that Paul the apostle had the greatest intellect and the highest IQ of any man that's ever walked this earth. I don't think any of the eggheads today could touch him. He had a giant intellect. Read the epistle to the Romans and tell me what you think about it. Somebody laughed at me the other day. They said, you teach Romans two years on the radio, and then you say that you hope to get in Paul's class in heaven to hear him teach it. And I'm, I'm sincere when I say that. I'm looking forward to the day when I can listen to Paul the Apostle teach Romans. I want to find out what it's all about. I'm confident I don't know. That man had an intellect. No man could have reached him of the apostles. A martyr reached him, the first one. That young fellow, Stephen, and Paul at that time was a young man. He saw him stoned, and he had to go off and say to himself, he looked into heaven and he says, I see heaven open and Jesus standing, and I've never seen it. And that young man's got something that I don't have, though he had a giant intellect. That young man has something. And on the road to Damascus, that was the preparation for this man. And the Lord Jesus himself way, waylaid that man so he could say, I was born again out of due season. Will you listen to what he says here? After that conversion, our Lord sent him into Damascus. And the Lord said unto him, Go thy way. He's now telling this man, Simon, to go to him, for he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God did not pick, the Lord Jesus did not choose an ignoramus to do this. He picked the most brilliant man of that day. Listen to something else he says concerning him. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. I tell you, this man, everywhere he went, he was able by a tremendous conviction through the power of the Spirit of God to prove that the Lord Jesus Christ was God. But this man had a handicap, and it was, I think, a one sense, a, a serious handicap. Uh, he was not what you would call, well, he was not what you would call a, a man that was beautiful. You couldn't say that concerning him. Over in 2 Corinthians, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, the second time said in chapter 10, verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. Then he said again on down in verse 10, For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. I think Paul had a wheeze in his voice. I don't think that he convinced people by his oratory or, or the fact that he was a fine-looking person. Paul was not that. 
And he makes it clear, writing to the Galatians, he says to them in chapter 4, verse 14, And my temptation, that is, that thorn in the flesh, which was in my flesh, ye despise not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Paul was very conscious of that imperfection that he had physically. But when Paul left town, they knew that what had been accomplished had been accomplished by the Spirit of God because of the looks of the man. Now, yonder in the city of Corinth, there are those that said, well, I don't care for Brother Paul. I don't like his voice. I don't like his manner. don't like his looks. But there's another group, and they were the intellectuals. They said, we love to hear him. He's logical. We like to hear that man, and so we have that little group, the proud pupils of Paul. Then there was the second man, Cephas, Simon Peter, rugged, weak at first, but on that day of Pentecost, from there on until he was martyred, that man became as bold as a lion. He had a great heart. He was emotional. But candidly, you cannot say this man was a great intellect. Listen to him. He very frankly says that he was not. Speaking of Paul, he says an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now, this is Second Peter 3, 15. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. I say amen to that, Simon Peter, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Now, Simon Peter had a great heart, and God used him. And there were those over in Corinth, they said, we love to hear Simon Peter. He gets up and he pounds the pulpit. And he yells at the top of his voice. And he's filled with emotion. We love him. And we understand him. But Brother Paul, what was he talking about last Sunday anyway? Now, there was this little group called the Chummy Cult of Cephas. They were the emotional folks. Then, my beloved, there was this man, Apollos. May I say to you, here's one of the great neglected preachers of the church. I think he's one of the greatest preachers in the apostolic church, and he was not an apostle. I think he's probably the greatest preacher of all time. He hasn't ever been given any proper recognition. I went wondering if I can turn over to the 18th chapter of the book of Acts and let you see a thumbnail sketch of this man. Will you listen to this? For you're listening now to the Spirit's estimate of one of the great preachers. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria. Now that's in North Africa. And may I say to you that the three greatest men in the early church came out of North Africa. They were called the Shaggy African. Origen, Tertullian, and Augustine all came from that area. The leadership in the early church came out of North Africa, not Europe, not Bible lands, 
not Asia Minor, but came from North Africa. This man came from that section. He's one of the great preachers. A certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria. Listen to the spirit now. An eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. He came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit. He spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. But notice, knowing only the baptism of John. Now he had not heard at this point. You see you're in a transition period. He had never heard of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All he knew was that John was announcing the Messiah and the Savior who was coming. And this man was still looking for him. And he only preached that. And notice, though, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, now in Ephesus, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now, I love these two. They were converts of Paul over in Corinth. They were a lovely couple. They'd gone over to Ephesus, and they went to church one Sunday morning, and here's this eloquent man, Apollos. And they noticed that he, he preached the baptism of John, but he didn't go any farther. And so after the service, they said to him, Do you have a dinner engagement? And he said, No. And they, I think, are the ones that started inviting the preacher home for dinner. And they invited him home for dinner. And while they were at dinner, they said, Now, Brother Paulus, that was a great sermon you gave this morning, but hadn't you heard that the one that John the Baptist announced has already come? No, he said, I haven't. Well, he uh, has. We heard Brother Paul over in Corinth, and he told us about how he died on a cross for our sin. He was buried and he was raised again, and and... He asked us to trust him, and we trusted him, and we were saved. And I want to say that also concerning Apollos, he's an humble man. He let this man and his wife teach him. And they led him to the Lord. And believe me, he became a firebrand for the Lord. Will you notice what it said concerning him? And when he was disposed to pass unto Achaia, now that's over in Corinth, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, he helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Same message of Paul the Apostle now. And this is, this man, I will call him, he is the Dwight L. Moody, the Billy Sunday and the Billy Graham of the Apostolic Church all rolled into one. The great preacher in the early church. Now, when he came to Corinth, you can imagine the effect that it had upon that city. So we have the adoring admirers of Apollos. These are the three. These men were all strong personalities, but they did not make the division. They contended together for the faith that had been delivered to the saints. They maintained the unity of the Spirit. But the members of the, of the church at Corinth, they were making the, the division. Then there were contentions and strife. And you can well understand how they got together. They'd meet and 
Somebody says, who's preaching today? They said, Paul's preaching. You know what happened? Cephas' crowd and Paulus' crowd, they walked out. said, we can't listen to him. Now, if they said Cephas is preaching today, well, the other crowd walked out. And my beloved, I didn't mention it, but there was a fourth crowd. Did you notice that? But you can't call it the human trinity, because if you'll notice what's said, now this I say that every one of you saith, I'm of Paul, and I of Paulus, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Ooh, that's the crowd I'd be afraid of. They made of Christ a little cult. And they excluded other believers. They said, we are the super-duper saints. We have had the baptism. <laughs> and they were the spiritual snobs. It was John Holmes who made this statement. He says, some people would not hesitate to drive up to the gate of heaven and honk. This is the crowd that would honk. They were that they were, may I say to you, my friend, they were the real stinkers. The others were bad enough, but these are the real stinkers. Oh, we belong to Christ. Yes, but if you do, why do you exclude the others? You have no monopoly on him. My beloved, you cannot exclude other believers even if you disagree with them. I wish we could learn that in our fundamental circles today. Let me illustrate this with a very personal illustration, very homely, but you forgive me. No one has spoken out more severely against Pentecostalism publicly in this area than I have. I claim to be the champion there. That's the only place I do claim it. I have spoken out and written against the tongues movement and against faith healers, but not against faith healing. Don't misunderstand. Because I'm here because of faith healing, but no faith healing. Now somebody will say this, and every now and then somebody says this to me, my, you must have it in for the Pentecostals. On the contrary, you're wrong. I don't have it in for them. I love them. I've tried to find a letter to bring here to read from a man. It's like getting a letter from the dead. He wrote this letter back in September, left it on his desk, and he died uh, suddenly. His daughter found the letter, and after the estate was settled, sent the gift that he wanted to send to our radio. And he was a Pentecostal. I wish I could have brought it. I love that brother. He'd written to me again and again. And he'd been here to this church. May I say to you, friend, I don't hate them. They're believers. This man was a real believer. They belong to the same body that I belong to, and they belong to Christ. Sure, I disagree with him on point. May I say to you, friends, this idea today, because you can disagree with someone, that you've excluded them. May I say to you, this idea of drawing into a little group and say, we're the group. You're not the group. The church today is being destroyed from the inside, not from the outside. The devil used two methods, and he's been successful in both. The first place that he aimed his gun was at the pulpit. 
And if you don't believe he's succeeded, you look in Southern California today, the majority of the men standing in the pulpit today do not believe this is the Word of God. They are here by reservation. And liberalism came in, but he found out there were certain pulpits he couldn't affect. But he went where he always goes, to the pew, and that's where he did his shooting. And he uses the pew to stir up strife. And my beloved, if you can't destroy a church through bringing liberalism into the pulpit, you can destroy it by bringing strife into the pew. And I say to you today that church fights have done more to damage the cause of Christ than all the liquor, than all the communism, and all the worldliness that there is. There is a song, it's a folk song that comes out of the mountains of Kentucky. It's called The Martins and the Coys. And I know you appreciate fine literature, and I want you to listen to two or three stanzas of this. There are about 25 stanzas here. I won't read them all. Listen to this. Oh, the Martins and the Coys, they were reckless mountain boys, and they took up family feuding when they'd meet. They would shoot each other quicker than it took your eye to flicker. They could knock a squirrel's eye out 90 feet. That's good. That's what it is. It's fine literature. Now let me move on down. I'll give you three more stanzas. I wish I could sing this. Oh, the Martins and the Coys, they were reckless mountain boys. But old Abel Martin was the next to go. Though he saw the Coys a-coming, he had hardly started running, for a volley shook the hills and laid him low. After that they started out to fight in earnest, and they scarred the mountains up with shot and shell. There was uncles, brothers, cousins. They say they bumped them off by dozens. Just how many bit the dust, it's hard to tell. Oh, the Martins and the Coys, they were reckless mountain boys. At the art of killing, they became quite deaf. They all knowed they shouldn't do it, but before they hardly knew it, on each side they only had one person left. And it goes on, and those two that were left was a girl on one side and a boy on the other. And the boy, the Martin, went out to get the coy, and he saw her, but he didn't shoot because she was pretty, and he, he married her. And the last stanza is, they're fighting more than they ever did before. <laughs> That's fine literature. Now, may I say to you, it, it's sort of utterly ridiculous that that ever took place in Kentucky, but it's happening in many fundamental churches today, and I do not know a church today that does not have a major problem. A feuding, a fighting, and a fussing. They don't do it anymore in Kentucky, but they do it in fundamental circles today. Now, may I move quickly? What's the answer? What's the solution? Uh, how do you solve th this riddle? Will you listen to Paul because he'll not leave it dangling? Listen to him here. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Anything that breaks up the unity in Christ I don't care how fundamental it is, it has something wrong in it. It breaks up the unity. Is Christ divided? 
And Paul doesn't even answer that because it's so utterly preposterous to think he's divided. And he doesn't answer the next one either. Was Paul crucified for you? Why, my friend, the crucifixion of Christ is the bedrock of the church. Why, it's too absurd to even contemplate. Paul says, you think I'm crucified for you? What do you mean gathering around me? Gather around Christ and you don't make him a little cult. And then he says, were ye baptized in the name of Paul? And he's not talking about water baptism, I'm convinced. Water baptism in that day was in the name of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This was baptized in the name of Paul or in the name of Christ. And that baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that made them one in Christ. I ask the question again, what is the answer? Will you listen to me now very carefully as I conclude? The answer is a return to the person of Christ. Listen to this. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Therefore let no man glory in man. We're not to glory in man at all. May I put it like this? I can fellowship with any man irrespective of denomination, regardless of his race, his color, or his creed, who will meet with me about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and exalt him. And that man that has turned to Christ and has accepted and received him and looks to him as his Lord, that man's my brother. I can't help it. He's my brother. Will you listen now to Paul? Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Now listen to this. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, He's saying now to this little group of Cephas, just don't gather around him. Don't you know that Christ has given Paul to the church? He's given Apollos to the church, and he's yours too. Not just Cephas. Cephas is yours, but they're all yours. My beloved, all of them belong to us today. Paul's mine. We're talking about him today, what he wrote. He belongs to me. Cephas belongs to me. I love Simon Peter. And Apollos belongs to me. And down through the ages, Martin Luther and Calvin. And somebody says to me, are you a Calvinist? What do you mean by that, brother? You mean I follow a little cult? No, sir. Calvin belongs to me. But because John Calvin belongs to me, doesn't mean John Wesley doesn't belong to me, because he belongs to me too. And how he has thrilled my soul as I have read his own biography, autobiography, as he tells in his journal how he came to Christ and about that experience yonder in Georgia. My heart goes out to him. He belongs to me and he belongs to you, my beloved. This idea today of gathering around some little group. God have mercy on us. These all belong to us. But he's not through. He says, are the world. 
The world is mine today. It's the cosmos he's talking about here, not organized society, or as this new book has it, the title of the new book, The Secular World. And he's not talking about this man-made structure, but he's talking about this creation God has made. It's ours. It's yours. Did you get up this morning, Christian friend, and look out at this glorious day that God has made and thanked him for it? I've just learned that since I been operated on. I lived all these years and never thanked God for every day. I do now. I went to the window and I looked up and I call those my mountains. One of my neighbors said to me several years ago, why do you call them your mountains? They're my mountains. i tell you what I mean. When I was a boy, very poor boy, every Saturday morning, about six of us little fellas in that town, we were about 10, 12 years old. We used to start to the Arbuckle Mountains. At the foot of the Arbuckle Mountains was the Sylvie Ranch. It was thousands of acres. We just climbed over the fence, and it was ours. Mr. Sylvie lived in Ardmore. The first automobile I ever saw, he owned it. He drove out, you crank the thing from the side. And that's about all you did was crank it, too, because he just didn't go very far. Tell his man had to get out. He had a cow iron driving it, had to get out and crank it again. And he sat in the back, had robes all over him, coat buttoned up. He had stomach trouble. He couldn't eat. He had actually made the statement he had never walked on that ranch, bought it in a trade. He owned it. That is, he had the deed to it. He paid the taxes. But we six boys, we really owned it. It was ours. When we crawled over that fence in the fall, we knew where the red haw trees were. You ever eat red haws in the fall? We knew where the persimmon trees were. We knew where the pecan groves were, too. We got them. We never asked anybody. They were ours. He had the deed but they were ours. My friend, my Christian friend today, this world is, is ours. It's mine. And then he says something else, our life. Life is ours. Again, may I be personal. I thank God for every day. I didn't think I'd be here today, but he was good and gracious and, and sensed the then, since I've been operated on, I have found more of loveliness and tenderness and sweetness in this life than I ever dreamed was here. Oh, I've had bitterness, don't misunderstand. But may I say to you, he brought all that into my life, and it's mine. It's mine. And life. And then he says something else here. Death. Death is mine. Death is yours. Somebody says, I'm afraid of it. Oh, no, my friend. Listen to what the great Dr. Parker years ago said. He says, very well, death is yours. It belongs to you. Death is not to master you. You are going to master it. Death is yours. Paul said, O grave, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Life 
is mine. Death is mine. I'm going to triumph over it someday. May I say to you, friend, what a glorious prospect this life is. Then he says something else. Things present. Things present. Listen to me. You belong to me. Yes, you do. You belong to me. And whether you like it or not, I belong to you. You got the worst end of the deal. But may I say to you, friends, we live our life one into another. We can't help it. You never met a person. You never had a conversation but what they didn't live their life into you. And you live your life into them. All of these things, things present. And then things to come. And I'm through now. The highway markers are not very clear. The foundations are washed out today. A medley of voices are speaking. But the future is yours, and the future is mine. Someone has said, I would rather, I would rather lose now and win later than win now and lose later. And I'm going to win. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Then he goes on to say, And ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. All things are yours. I'm speaking to Christians today. I'm speaking to church members today. Get out of your little cellophane bag. Get out of the little shell that you're in and thinking that we're the people. We're the ones that are doing We're not. Christ is not divided. All of is mine, all is mine, Cephas is mine, they're all yours, and Christ is ours. Are you in tune with the music of the Father, or are you playing your own melody? Maybe the Spirit of God is speaking right now, calling you to come under His rightful and just hand, directing your life like a conductor of a beautiful symphony. If you don't know Him yet as your Savior, we got some great resources by Dr. McGee that we think will help you understand what that really means. You can stream or download these resources anytime at ttb.org. Just click on How Can I Know God? Or if you'd prefer, we can drop a few of these in the mail to you. Just email BibleBus at ttb.org or call 1-800-652-4253. And to go deeper in 1 Corinthians 1, I want to suggest you download our digital booklet, The Cross Divides Men. In this study, Dr. McGee takes us through chapter 18, leaving no middle ground when it comes to the cross. You either believe in the power given to us through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, or you count it all foolishness. There are only two choices. Again, that's ttb.org or call 1-800-65-BIBLE if we can answer your questions about this fruitful ministry. And you can also write to us at Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109, or in Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Now, today's study, The Human Trinity in the Church at Corinth, is available at ttb.org. You'll find all our Sunday sermon programs online in our archives and all of our daily studies and Dr. McGee's questions and answer programs as well. Now, as we go, I'm Steve Schwetz praying 1 Peter 1, verse 2 and 3 over us. Grace to you and peace be multiplied 
blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Join us each weekday for our five-year daily study through the whole Word of God. Check for times on this station or look for Through the Bible in your favorite podcast store and always at ttb.org.